This episode is sponsored by a patron to Easier World. Easier World aims to give voice and power to those traveling with diverse ability. The website contains user-generated reviews of various locations and how accessible they are, from restaurants to airlines. It aims to become the Yelp of the diversability world. Visit EZRworld.com. On this episode, we have Olivia Rosewood. Olivia was born and raised in Denver. She quote-unquote ran away from home to attend the prestigious Interlochen Center for the Arts in northern Michigan. From there, she won a scholarship to attend USC. In her life experiences with meditation, she met George Harrison of the Beatles and was moved by his description of meditation as a conscious shift of attention. Olivia has worked as an actress and has published numerous books. She has also won Tai Chi competitions and worked closely with Eckhart Tolle on his various world tours. She leads meditations on Instagram and for corporations such as Louis Vuitton. Olivia, thank you so much for being on our show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's really great to have you. Um, uh, really appreciate all the amazing work you've done on meditation and um, being an advocate for getting more people to to meditate. I see kind of this uh, theme of tireless effort in that regard and um, really look forward to, to diving into that as we chat. Um, I'd love to go back though and um, I couldn't quite tell. Does your story begin in Denver? <laughs> uh, well, from a meditative perspective, that's a really deep question. <laughs> Does it? <laughs> well, we are head. going to get into the flying trapeze artist. <laughs> but um, from a uh, karmic cycle perspective, uh, were you born in Denver? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Denver. All right, brilliant. And uh, your parents were actors in musical theater. Asim, how did you know that? <laughs> That's so bizarre. It's an, it's yeah. an enchanted episode, I, Olivia. <laughs> you're like, you're psychic. Yes, they were. At that time, they were both musical theater actors. Yeah. And do you have siblings? I do. I have an older brother and then two younger brothers. Wow. Okay. So yeah. The only daughter, and, yes. Um, kind of a middle child, but not exactly. So, uh, well, more like a younger, the youngest child, because my two younger brothers are half brothers. Got you. Okay. And so I have a maternal feeling toward them. Sure. But I have like a spoiled brat feeling when I'm around my older siblings. <laughs> so <laughs> I get to now, play all the roles. Do you do you say that, or does he say that, and you? Own it? <laughs> Oh, I don't, he's really, he's very nice. I don't think he says that. I think that's just my feeling. I feel cared for him and uh, nice. the younger one. Yeah. That's good. That's great. Yeah. Um, are your parents still with you? Um, well, uh, do you mean on the planet or? Yeah. Are they still alive? <laughs> they're still alive. Yes. Okay. And yeah. still in Denver? No, there was a lot of movement during my childhood and they ended up kind of at opposite ends of of the country and and also kind of out of the arts and wow. you know entropy I've learned is something that um, pulls on all of us you know and it takes effort to hold things together so in their cases that pulled them quite quite far apart okay 
right. yeah yeah well yeah the entropy happens it's uh often a matter of uh um learning how to cope and, and hang on to that um yeah you drop the cup it shatters and you can't it's you, hard to put it back it, together <laughs> you can try but it will never really be the same it's best just not to drop the cup if possible this is true or unscrambling that egg <laughs> or just realizing there's the spiritual story that goes into every uh, yeah. tradition, which is the cup is already broken. Oh. So just know that it's going to break and enjoy it while you have it. Yeah. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I love that. I really love that. Um, you attended an arts high school. Mm-hmm, I did. Yes. Uh, and uh, what was that experience like? Did that make you feel like this is what you wanted to pursue, at least for the next stage of your life? <laughs> um, it did. I mean, the truth is that it was kind of an escape from my home life Okay. to, to go to Interlochen, which is a wonderful um, private boarding school for artists. <clears throat> and is this um, the one in Switzerland? No, this, <laughs> there is one in Switzerland, and there's a town in Switzerland. So Interlaken, it means between the lakes, right. and that's in northern Michigan. Not the Upper Peninsula, okay. but the northernmost part of Michigan. And I first arrived there in the winter. They gave me a full scholarship, which was wow. so amazing. Brilliant. For theater, which I didn't know I could do. Previously, I had been a, a ballet dancer, and I had already started dabbling in trapeze. Um, and uh, and I didn't realize there were any structures hmm. there because it was all covered in snow Amazing. and um, just white as far as the eye could see. The sun rose at 11 a.m. and the sun set around 2 p.m. Yeah. <laughs> Not an ideal spot for artists, but in the other, uh, in another sense, um, a really good place for inward reflection and creativity because there's just nothing else it's true yeah mm. it's it's like um when we watch it snow that dynamicism creates a stillness within us and so i think it's a bit of the inverse when we see that there's no real stimulation outside and all we see is like this almost white canvas um we have to go inside to to create something. Yes. Develop. So that's the sense I get when you share that. Yeah, um, Interlochen actually provides seventy percent of musicians to the world's orchestras. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah, it's really significant in its contribution of classical musicians, and a big part of that is that these classical musicians, like my best friend Siobhan, who's a, a harpist in London. And nice. Uh, also does musical therapy, but they would, she still spends more than six hours a day practicing her instrument. Yeah. And at Interlochen, they would just go into the practice rooms, which were not only in this cold, dark environment, but also underground. So wow. <laughs> there's no light there. Yeah. Um, it's very similar to what, um, religious orders or spiritual orders would ask of their uh, devotees in terms of meditation or prayer. Yeah. But for musicians, it's um, for music. Yeah. I'm a huge classical music fan. And so um, I can really appreciate what you mean. And long before Malcolm Gladwell came out with his 10,000 hour 
hypothesis or, or theory, um, it, we were, you know, most of us were well aware, like, yeah, it requires that level of commitment four to six hours on a daily basis in order to uh, achieve mastery. Um, wow, that's, that's really amazing. Um, I don't want to gloss over the flying trapeze story because it's a brilliant one. So I'm going to ask you to go back a little bit in time because I think you were about 13 or so, or you were a teenager when this happened. Um, and, and so share with us about that experience. Uh, well, one of my really close friends, Robin, her brother um, was interested in flying trapeze and he practiced at the local YMCA. And um, her brother actually went on to develop these amazing tree climbing tools, which are used by um, all sorts of people who need to climb trees quickly. <laughs> Other <laughs> than squirrels. squirrels. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he, he, was, he loved flying trapeze, and I just had always dreamed of doing that. And up until that point, I was studying classical ballet. And uh, so... He said, yeah, come along with me. And so I met the most wonderful group of people who practiced the flying trapeze really for a, a hobby. Some of them were professionals. And this was in Denver in the summer. And um, Denver used to be a hub for the circuses. So all the little circuses would pass through Denver. And, you know, they would leave a trapeze rig, a trapeze setup for themselves to practice. So they had a full, amazing trapeze rig. And um, for me, it was incredibly therapeutic to experience a level of um, not only risk, so it kind of like race car driving, because you're, you're up really high. It doesn't look that high maybe from the audience, but you're up really high on your perch, and you're hanging on to this flying bar, and you really feel the intensity of gravity, and you uh, also feel at certain moments weightless, and at the same time, just totally exhilarated with adrenaline. So this was before I had discovered meditation, and the adrenaline um, brought me into a state of being fully present in the moment where my worries, my excessive overthinking, my speculation, my my dreams of the future, my ruminations about the past, all disappeared. And everything disappeared except that moment. Mm. And I felt for the first time that I'm aware of, really fully alive and fully present. And in addition to that intense presence, you're working with others. So when you throw a trick and you're caught by the catcher, who's typically a muscular man, but sometimes a woman, um, you're flying through the air and someone catches you and there's an incredible bond and trust that is developed wow. through that. Um, there's a tradition of kissing your first catcher because it is, um, for me, it was a deeper bond of trust than I had experienced in my family of origin. Wow. And so it was incredibly therapeutic for me, not only to experience it, but to know it exists and to know it's out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it really motivated me to begin adventuring in life. 
Oh, I love that. That's so yeah. great. That is wonderful. Um, a few threads there that I'd love to explore, if you'd like. You mentioned this um, level of trust in a catcher that you didn't have necessarily in your family of origin. Uh, can we chat more about that? Sure. So yeah. some issues of uh, maybe not feeling... Um, I don't know if it, I'd love to explore what it was. Was it an acceptance or was it a, a trust that they had your best interests? Was it a distraction of other things going on in their lives so they couldn't be present for you? Oh, well, I'm uh, kind of unique among children in that my mother left uh, our family when I was eight. Oh, wow. And uh, she did that. Um, out of ambition to become a star in musical theater and kind of realized um, that she didn't really want to be a mother. Wow. Yeah, and it's quite rare for a woman to be the one to leave a, a, a family. Um, but in my life, I've encountered a lot of other um, people who've had that experience. And um, I think men get a bad rap for... <laughs> For not being good family men, because in my experience, um, men can be wonderful providers and wonderfully stable. Um, but that definitely threw a wrench in all of the inner workings of my family at that time. And it was very difficult for my father to be present or to connect. And I think with his trust broken, um, it was more difficult for him to really be his best self. Wow. So uh, I felt quite alone in the world, and I knew that I wanted to be um, a creative person. I thought at that time I would be a, a ballet dancer, right. and his feeling about that was, you know, not under my roof. Oh, and so I felt great. like I had to choose between um, staying in that home or kind of making my way in the world, and so. By the time I was 14, I felt quite on my own, and, and I was in the world. Well, well and yeah. that's when you went to Michigan. Thank goodness they took me. <laughs> what would have happened to me? You would I have, definitely... You would have found another route. <laughs> I would argue I they were lucky to have you. <laughs> they, well, I think that they were... It was, it was a really good... It was a really good match. Yeah. Um, and well, I, and yeah. You had the inspiration to apply there? Um, I had met a woman who, <laughs> I had met a woman who, um, who had gone there and uh, she just recommended it as a great place for artists and for developing, um, developing artistic abilities. And uh, I didn't feel safe. I didn't, I didn't really share what was going on in my family, I really tried to hide it and act like everything was okay. So I made this video of myself doing a Shakespearean monologue, which was required to audition. And, and I sent it in myself. And um, I, I was able to forge my parents' signature uh, very early, early on. <laughs> I so and love then, this um, story. You know, I, to fly there, I, <laughs> this shows how old I am. Um, this was way before the internet, kids. But I, um, I found a, a classified listing for a woman who was selling her plane ticket to exactly where I wanted to go. So 
I contacted her and I bought it. And then I got to the airport and in fact, it, she had sold me a canceled ticket. And somehow I was able to, uh, I mean, this was before you had to show ID to yeah, get on exactly. an airplane. Yeah. So somehow I, I don't even remember what I said, but I got on that airplane and I, I got to, oh, to yeah. Interlaken. Oh, <laughs> that is so amazing. And I got there and I thought, I've reached this great expanse of snow. Ah, <laughs> safe at last. Yes, yeah. It's like, <laughs> like so, something out of a scene from Frozen, <laughs> even though that would be decades hence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's <laughs> really extraordinary. Um, mm, yeah, it's great. I can't begin to understand what you went through um, with these set of experiences but it feels like you've made peace for yourself and with both of your parents around all that transpired is that accurate well i'm i'm actually very grateful um for that experience and i feel that it was i mean my perspective of it now and not everyone will agree with this perspective but I do feel that our souls choose these journeys before we come onto the planet. And my soul clearly um, chose challenge and wanted something interesting this time around. And, you know, some of the best experiences I've had in my life have come to me because I was launched or I allowed myself to be launched by challenge. So without this challenge, I might have been um, safer, felt safer at certain times, or I might have been more sheltered, but I would not have had the great experiences that I've had. And certainly for myself, I'm very grateful, very grateful for that launch. That's really amazing. Um, you call it launch, but um, what comes to mind a little bit is being forced off the cliff and <laughs> trying to figure out how to build a parachute on your way down, um, which you did brilliantly. Yeah, well, yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of different ways to look at it. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I do feel that, you know, when you find yourself falling over the edge of a cliff, um, definitely get creative. <laughs> Look at the classifieds. <laughs> Lead with airport personnel. Absolutely. Creativity is so necessary. Um, but I really appreciate your sharing that and um, your, your vulnerability and um, uh, disclosing all of it was is, is really appreciated Olivia thank you um, oh, it's my pleasure I think a lot of people have a uh, challenge and or even more challenge than I've had and um, I think it's wonderful to celebrate like Houdini kind yes. of how how you develop these skills and yeah. these, the ability to navigate yeah no it is yeah. true and in many ways it's kind of the purpose and the ethos of this uh, podcast like um, our tagline is mining the nonlinear path the things that happen that 
you had to grapple with and 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 struggle with that's that's what's interesting that's what's unique and uh um, i i appreciate that a lot asim because a lot of the time when you talk to people um especially people who are famous you you just get the the very simple oh this 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 and this happened and now i'm here and to most people they think wow that seems so easy yeah. But what's always left out of that recounting is all of the, the in-between times, the uncertain times, the, the challenge. And that's definitely the, the most interesting grit. Absolutely. Well, and you've experienced it from the artist's perspective, the actor perspective. Um, I've seen it from the entrepreneur's side. Um, everybody loves to celebrate the success stories. I mean, how many times have we heard about Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg? But for every one of those, there are hundreds of thousands of, of failures. Um, and even those stories, um, in the beginning, there was no crystal ball that said, this is what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg had no idea what he was creating. He was just like, this seems cool. I'm going to keep going. <laughs> And he, you know, he figured it out later. Um, and so, yeah, there's just, um, this is where the fascinating things come up. And this is really what forges us, right? It's these experiences yeah. that, that make us who we are. Because it just came to me with um, crystal clarity as you described it. I'm like, this is why Olivia is so fearless. Yeah you've gone through your life with this amazing aplomb and and confidence and and like it just you're like now it's time for this and um there's no like you just with this brilliant amazing confidence so uh, i appreciate that and now i'm getting a sense for where that all comes from and so uh, i appreciate you for for sharing all of this well thank you it's really interesting i seem to hear you reflect my story back to me because <laughs> i don't even think about it <laughs> no that's what happens right i just take for granted oh yeah well you know yeah but it's really interesting to hear your filter of it very beautiful yeah, yeah. Mm. so after graduating interlochen your story your journey brought you to la i got accepted but i got accepted to the school of journalism which wasn't what I applied for. So I had to call them and and straighten it out. And um, through that process, I uh, got a full scholarship to USC. Wow, congrats. Thank you. And that was my next, uh, my next step. And I, part of your journey. Yeah, made it Um, to Los Angeles. There's a story of you visiting LA at 18. Was that on your way to attend USC? Yes. And then, yeah. well, Which then story is that? You've you got the all the stories. Yeah, I can tell you what the story is. Because, <laughs> um, it, it touches on a little bit on what we were talking about, how the story of actors and actresses seems like this really polished fairy tale of, oh, this happened, and then I was in that movie, and then that film, and then this director worked with me. And so... Um, I loved how you've described this as the bubble of actors being enlightened burst um, when Tom Hanks crashed into you while surfing. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's true. So um, I, I was in, I came to Los Angeles and I, um, I had this old car that I was driving around. It was an Oldsmobile, a yellow Oldsmobile with a sunroof, a little sunroof. And 
as I was driving it, the, the sunroof at one point just flew off into the, into the, into the netherworld. I'll never know what happened to it. Um, but wow. I was, I was in Los Angeles before USC and my friend Dan, who, um, is a wonderful pianist from Interlochen, uh, his family had a home, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Malibu colony, which is this amazing kind of, uh, uh, private um, housing community in Malibu, very secure. And uh, I was there with him and I, I definitely had this feeling or this belief that, and, I, and I, I don't think I'm alone. I think a lot of people have this impression too, that somehow celebrities have this magic about them. Yeah, majority and of them. That, Well, they also, they capitalize on that mystique. It's kind of needed for cinema to have that aura that it does yeah i'm not exactly sure how how it comes to be if it was when i was growing up i read about them in magazines and mm -hmm. and definitely the the press around movie stars when i was growing up was such that it just seemed like everything was perfect and everything was easy and uh it really felt like a description of greek gods Yes. You know, well, that they oh could God. just right. do anything, know everything. Um, and I had this feeling that I, I didn't even know I had until it, the bubble pops. Like, oh, if I could be close to a celebrity or if I, everything would change. Everything would change. Somehow I, I thought that. And so I was on the seashore with my friend and he said, oh, look, there's, there's Tom Hanks. He's out there surfing, and, and he was out there with some friends or bodyguards or a combination of, uh, of that. And, and I, my heart started beating so fast, and my mouth got dry, and I could feel myself break into a sweat. It was just so exciting wow. to be that close to someone who was a celebrity and a, and a very fine actor. And... Um, and then all of a sudden, and I thought, well, everything, I would just, how, how everything would change if I could just meet him. And then in a split second, he was at my feet. He almost knocked me over. And he said, oh, so sorry. And he had a big smile on his face and he ran back out and, and, and nothing changed. <laughs> nothing changed at all. And I realized it happened because I'd come from very far away from the celebrity scene. And, and it happened that I'd met and, and been bumped into by this huge movie star. And, and I was still the same. All my thoughts were the same, my feelings. And I realized at that point, wow, that, that thought was not correct. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> and I realized that I'd had it too. And so in a sense, that was very freeing right. to have that realization. Nice. Oh, that's yeah. Thank you for, uh, for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I want to uh, talk about uh, 1997 and you're in Fiji. Um, had you graduated by then? From USC? Yeah. No, we're still waiting on that. So. <laughs> oh, as of now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's great. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so there's a story there. Um, you studied at <laughs> USC and then you embarked on this tour that somehow brought you to Fiji in 97. So what happened? 
Yeah, well, what did happen? Um, essentially, you know, they, USC, to continue my scholarship, required documents from my parents. And that, di that didn't happen. So I... Your parents uh, didn't... No, they were not... Yeah, they didn't... Uh, they were not involved, very involved or supportive. And so I went back to USC in the fall of my sophomore year to check into my dorm after I was staying with friends for the summer in Los Angeles. And, and there was just no money set up there because they needed um, documentation of, of various sorts from parental units that didn't happen. So as I'm standing there, there's always a very long line to, to talk to the financial aid office at USC. And, you know, they just had to tell me, here are the facts. And I just felt my heart drop and my, I just didn't know what I was going to do. So these moments of emptiness and despair, they pass. Um, and as we're about to talk about, turn into other adventures. So, yeah. So there's, <laughs> there was a wave of anger that was um, uh, going through me as you shared that story. And mm -hmm. um, I took a, a few moments while you were talking and I, I did remain present with you, but I was also sort of, um, exploring why that was and it's obviously because i had a very similar thing happen and so really? like the ptsd around i triggered you <laughs> um well trigger is if i have a non-socially acceptable response right okay. <laughs> this was just a series of thought patterns yeah. in my mind that identified it and did you reach out to them and and ask them to do what they needed to do you know, I didn't. It's um, I. But the school I, was, had. The school had, yeah, and it was it, at that point it was too late. So it was the beginning of the term. So, you know, the financial, all of the financial documents are due at a certain point. You know, in the summer, I don't remember what the cutoff date was. Um, How did you forgive your parents for that, Olivia? I gotta ask. For me. Um, learning about anger as an energy has been really helpful. So um, I went to graduate school ultimately for traditional Chinese medicine. And the way that anger is described in the Taoist tradition is that it's um, the energy that's required in a seedling for it to burst through a hard shell. And it's the energy that's required to, you know, somehow these energies have an inner knowing, an inner knowing that there's light reaching for, for it. And so the seedling reaches for the light, even though it has to push through this dark soil that feels like adversity, that feels like, you know, one of my favorite teachers, Edward Sullivan, says, you know, it's, it's not just soil that makes roses really beautiful. It's manure. <laughs> and you push through it knowing that there's light, knowing that there's warmth, and ultimately you reach that warmth. 
and you realize that that soil, that, that shell, none of that was there to hurt you. It was part of a natural process of growing. And you realize that as you continue to reach toward the light, there's a part of you that keeps digging deeper into the earth, into the darkness, no longer afraid of that darkness, but instead being nourished by it. So that energy, if you don't feel that anger, if you don't feel it and let it move you into creativity, what happens inside of a seed is that the, if that little seedling, if that little sprout doesn't use that energy to push through, it rots. It does. It rots in there and it just dissolves. And so that could be described as repressed anger or depression. So energetically, when you think about anger um, within that framework, it's not so much about forgiveness as it is about accepting what happened and moving from it and, and using that energy to move forward. And uh, I did have conversations with my parents later, once I had children, you may have experienced this too. It brought up a lot of these issues again for me. I'm like, whoa, I would never, and even though I embrace my childhood, I'm not advocating that parents parent in this way ever. <laughs> it happens sometimes, but not everyone is able to thrive in those circumstances. Um, no, you so are I asked that way. Them, I hope you know that. <laughs> I'm not Thank kidding. You. That's not flattery. That's honesty. That's really, yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off, but I had to say. Well, it. when I did ask them about it, they didn't even remember. So they were each in so much chaos, or they didn't want to talk about it. We'll never really know, but they were both in so much chaos still in their personal lives that it wasn't even a blip on their radar. It wasn't even memorable to them. Wow. Yeah. So what can you do except to use that adversity as nourishment and carry on? The other option is to stew and rot. <laughs> so I chose to flourish. You and me both. Yeah. Um, it happened to me again later, much later in life, very recently, but we'll get into that. I don't want to dominate the, the conversation, but I really love the way you describe that, the seedling that has to get through the manure and the soil to grasp that sunlight. That is a indelible image that will stay with me for a while. Um, and, um, you know, a little less robust or on point, but what you talked about kind of this this samurai tradition that i've always leaned back on of always move forward even when you're in a shit storm always move forward yes uh, wallowing has never gotten anybody anywhere or achieved anything and so you know certainly give your space give yourself the space to experience the emotions um, as you very much did, that sensation of, you know, your heart falling to the ground, you have to give that space. You can't repress that because bad things happen. So you move through that, you give that 
space to an energy to to be felt and but then you you one foot goes in front of the other and you say okay what am i doing here and you you find a find the path so, i would say that the Taoist equivalent to your samurai saying is that the the water that flows will never decay well, that you just keep moving and in tai chi they say um sometimes you're moving backward or it feels like you're moving backward but just keep moving because sometimes moving backward is moving forward. I love that. Um, yeah. And you say that to yourself when you're actually moving backward, yeah. <laughs> you're practicing Tai Chi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, you've really uh, mastered Tai Chi principles. You've won awards for it and gold medals, which we will chat about. Um, so your sophomore year uh, or what would have been your sophomore year that's this was the compulsion to embark on this uh, world tour or was it a single destination you know it's so easy to uh, to tell the easy story so the reality of what happened i gave tours of the stars homes so i got my commercial driver's license and i drove a van while i was doing that i um, got certified in massage therapy Oh. at California Healing Arts College nice. um, because I'd always, uh, I'd always been quite good at that. My aunt is actually um, a traditional Chinese medical practitioner and she's a very gifted healer and massage therapist. And, on your dad's side or your mom's side? Uh, that was on my mom's side. She's actually a half-sister and she still teaches, Angela Crowley. Um, and that led me to working on Gavin DeBecker, who's a security expert for celebrities and politicians. And three presidents. Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. We finally arrived at uh, your interaction with George Harrison. And um, the beauty of his comment to you, um, and you had a great HuffPost article about this, that meditation was simple. It's a conscious shift of attention. Yes. Tell us about that. The experience of interacting with him and then how that impacted you. Well, I was um, still, you know, relatively young and uh, I was running a spa out of the side of a cliff. It was kind of built into the cliffs. Um, and the inside was lined with seashells and very beautiful and it overlooked the reef. And um, was this in Suva? No, this was outside of Suva near Sava Sava. Okay. Um, and um, I was introduced to, uh, you know, even though I was working at this plantation, I was treated you know, like an equal and I was welcomed in the social situations. And so there were always notable celebrities coming through because it was a place for them to go and feel safe and not feel inhibited as though, you know, they're, they're being watched or studied or preyed upon in any way. So it was kind of a free, safe space for them. And, um, and so I had met lots of famous people, both um, uh, in entertainment and also in politics and, um, so when I was introduced to George Harrison, I, I uh, have to admit, I, you know, I wasn't a big Beatle fan. Right. It kind of wasn't my generation. I knew who they were, but sure. 
it wasn't um you know um it it wasn't as exciting as meeting Tom Hanks for the first time right. because at uh, this point I had met so many celebrities. But he and reminded you of Uncle Peter. He reminded me a lot of my Uncle Peter, yeah. And um, Uncle Peter, <laughs> you're so good at this. You, you actually read that article. You know, it's really funny how often people don't read um, these days. So I, I really respect and appreciate that. Well, it's, um, uh, you're a great writer. That helps. Oh, <laughs> that's really nice. Thank you. Um, so when I met George, he, he was introduced to a lot of people and he just said, hello, hello. Yes, nice to meet you. Hello, hello. And he got to me and he looked me square in the eyes deeply. And he held my hand for an uncomfortably long uh, time. And he said, do you know how to meditate tonight? I said, no, but I'd really like to learn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. And, um, and so he, and, and he, he was just recovering from throat cancer. George, I don't know if it came from performing in front of millions of people or if he just always had it, but there was definitely this regal energy about him that he used. He maybe was aware of, maybe not, but he was very careful with it. And um, yeah, and he had a camera. So he was recovering from throat cancer. And Peter also, Peter had actually just died of throat cancer. So interesting um, that they had that similar condition, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and George was actively focusing on beauty. And so he had this video camera, which by um, our standards then was really compact. Right. But compared to what we experience now, it was quite large, like With a bread box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he would only video uh, beauty. So he would video, take a little video of the sun setting, the sun rising, the ocean waves kissing the sand, the starlight, a beautiful flower. Um, he had a, an image of a, of a ukulele that he was upholstering in I think zebra pattern for his son. So really focusing on images of beauty and the idea with this practice, and this was a practice that went on all day and all, all of his waking hours and he would show me the compilations. He would, it was a really cool effect that you could do a crossfade. <laughs> right. <laughs> this was, you know, this was the birth of, this was before email. Right. This was maybe the birth of email. Um, so that was the practice that he shared with me and it was very simple, but it was just consciously giving your focus. And there's a depth to this practice, which is that what you give your focus, your consciousness really reflects. It's almost like you take that shape. So when you're watching an action movie, for example, you might feel if it's really good, You'll feel your adrenaline flowing. You'll feel your heart beating because your consciousness is taking that shape. You're taking on the shape of this film. And the same is true in normal life. If you're always focusing on what's going wrong or mental complaining or rumination, that's the shape that your consciousness takes. And when George first gave me um, a, a meditation lesson, I... It, it completely changed my my mind 
I was living in a tree in a Baca banyan tree that overlooked the reef. And um, this is where I always stayed when I would go to this plantation. And, and on, from the balcony, you could see the reef and you could see the stars and you could see the stars reflected in the water. And I had never before been able to actually enjoy it mm. because my mind was in a million different places. I was still harboring some resentment toward my parents. I was worried about my future. I had endless financial worry, trying to figure out how to make everything work. Um, I was really consumed by my own neurosis to the point that even being in paradise, I couldn't even be in paradise. Well, you called it neurosis, but the reality is that these it's, these are perfectly normal reactions to all that happened to you. I would say that our version of normal is neurotic. Mm, okay. So it is normal, but I would say it's not, um, it's not a natural state for a human being. It's not a, an ideal state. I mean, no. yeah, it's natural, but it's interesting to think about because I encountered um, meditation at a somewhat young age, how did that shape the rest of my life? Just knowing that I had a steering wheel for my consciousness, mm -hmm. that I didn't have to be stuck in rumination all the time, that I could choose when I wanted to go there and really consciously look at that and consciously deal with that or reflect on it, or choose when I wanted to be in paradise where I, I where I was so just knowing that there is some control over where you allow your focus to go was incredibly empowering it's a great revelation to have at that age when yeah. you still had the ch ability to do something about it well I think it changed the way my mind worked Oh, that's so fantastic. Yeah, it definitely opened a door for me. Yeah, wow. Wow. Uh, and one that um, has been, I was going to use a finance metaphor, maybe it's not the most, <laughs> uh, I was going to say I've been paying dividends the rest of my life, but it's, it's, it's a lot more significant than that. Um, I would say that um, in finance terms, other ways of, of coping with trauma that may have um, come up in my life. So I know a lot of people cope with trauma through substances, right. um, whether they're prescribed or not prescribed, or through behaviors that are often self-destructive. I would say in terms of finance, those um, avenues of dealing with trauma have diminishing returns. <laughs> nice <episode>. Well done. <laughs> Whereas meditation for me has had um, kind of infinitely uh, increasing benefits. I don't know if there's a financial term for that. Yeah, it was like compounding interest. Okay, there you go. <laughs> the more you do it, the more it builds on itself and the bigger yeah. the impact gets. Yes. All right, so we've exactly. solved that one. Um, let's go on to the Middle East <laughs> peace crisis. Um, <laughs> Check. Next. Yes, exactly. So um, 
that was really extraordinary. Thank you for sharing that. Um, from there, um, what I, I, I couldn't quite tell what happened first. Did you go to India where you were a sannyasi or did you come back to LA and appeared in a handful of films? Well, I would say what, what um, happened that's significant also with George yeah. and his wife, Olivia, so Olivia is an extraordinary person in her own right, even though she's not a singer like, like the Beatles. <laughs> she's, she's kind of amazing too. And what I learned from them about romance was really significant and also timely. And their romance was with the divine. So they had a lot of love for each other, but what they shared with me is that the ultimate relationship, the truest romantic relationship is kind of directing that love and that expectation of undying love um, from the universe or from the divine instead of from a human being. And I think what that did for them is it took the pressure off of their relationship they weren't expecting each other to be their everything or to be a source of, of undying, limitless bliss and love. And I think that's a common expectation in, in relationships. Instead, because they were both so spiritual, they turned that um, need to the divine, to their own spiritual practice. And so that becomes kind of your primary relationship is with the, the universe. And then your partner is someone who's there for you and supports you in that, um, in that constant cultivation. And what you're doing is you're cultivating more and more love within yourself. And it does feel more limitless than the limited human um, romances. And so that also changed my perspective on what I was looking for. So before I was definitely, before this encounter, I was looking for that in a partner, in a man. I was looking for that total happiness, satisfaction, unending bliss. And the reality that I was encountering is that you do have that bliss initially when you're falling in love. Yeah there's that initial romance and there's so much, ooh, just amazing energy and electricity. Yeah. And then inevitably it kind of fizzles into a normalcy and um, all sorts of chaos tends to ensue in relationships. Yeah. Yeah, and there are lots of ways of dealing with that, but um, their example really paved that path for me and helped me to realize, oh, I don't have to look to a man for fulfillment or to a partner for fulfillment. I can find that in my spiritual practices. And then whoever is with me on this journey is just kind of a wonderful friend, a wonderful partner to have. And um, all of that pressure is kind of gone and it allows for more happiness and freedom in your relationship. Wow, that was profound. Um, <laughs> and certainly as you've been talking, I've been reflecting in personal experience and um, but I, it's, it's been a far cry from that. So 
Um, I appreciate your words. It, it's something I'm going to certainly steep myself in and revisit. So I'm, I'm working on a few books at the same time. Um, one of them is about George Harrison and, and that's the portable sanctuary. Right. And then, and that's kind of a reworking of a past project. Another one is about Eckhart Tolle, which is called Atlas of Blisses, mm. traveling with him. And then the third one is called Peace in the Jungle. Oh. And that's about uh, being married and having children and trying to navigate that because this is the real challenge yeah. where you have to not just talk the pretty words, but walk the walk. Uh, there was a book that uh, was discussed about coming out. Did it actually come out, The Elegance of Being? Oh, no, no. Um, I'm still working on that book as well. That was something that I was um, working on with HarperCollins, um, but I'm actually happy to work on it on my own instead. Mm. Nice. Um, yeah. I love that you've got multiple writing projects going on at the same time. I do, yeah. <laughs> Where do you find the time? <laughs> yeah, I think it's part of who I am. I love that, you know? that's really yeah. great. Yeah. Well, and then annoying podcast hosts call you and monopolize your time <laughs> for uh, hours on end. I once told my story about um, losing my, I had a medical bankruptcy with my daughter who has um, cerebral palsy. And when she was diagnosed mm -hmm. with that, um, we went through so much medically that I lost everything. And I actually, in my house, my car, in uh, the crash of 2009, and I love talking about it because I think it's really inspiring. And for me, knowing that going through that, you know, kind of going through one of my worst fears helped me to realize, like, oh, look, we're okay. You know, you, got through you can go, yeah, you can go through this and um, things are not people. I'm so grateful I didn't lose my daughter. I'm so grateful that um, it was just a, a relocation and uh, a challenging time. But I love to share that story, but it, it mortifies, it terrifies people who have never had a financial loss. Yeah, yeah. Terrifies them. <laughs> they almost can't always take it. So I had the owner of a meditation studio tell me once, never tell that story again. And her husband is an investment. <laughs> I don't think she's ever lost everything, but it's really empowering because you realize, oh, you can just, if you know how to earn, if you know how to create, you can make it again. It's okay. I'm just so floored that you said that because I've been through these situations and I've literally, I'm, recently it's happened to me again and it, it's tied into a larger family story, but um you're absolutely right. What gets you through that is that you feel so much more emboldened. Every time you get knocked down so far down and you come back up, it's like, that's what you have to remember and focus on. It's like all these people who just get handouts, they're the ones who are in bigger trouble. Whereas I've done it in the past. I can do it again. Absolutely. There's incredible self-esteem that comes from loss and recovery. Yes, absolutely. You feel how strong you are. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is incredible. <laughs> um, 
when was your daughter diagnosed? We're going to go out of sync now because we're I know. here. <laughs> we're going to forget chronological order. <laughs> uh, her diagnosis came when she was three years old, and it, it took a long time to understand what had happened. Sure. Um, she was born with a cleft palate, which is a fairly routine, um, uh, it's a pretty normal, pretty common birth yeah. difference. And they repair the palate around the age of nine months in order to actually help facilitate speech development. Sure. And um, during that procedure, they, there was a disagreement between the anesthesiologist and the surgeon. They were in the operating room and the surgeon advised just Tylenol for the recovery. And the anesthesiologist said, oh, I don't think that'll be enough. She needs opioids. And the surgeon said, no, no, she's an infant. She'll be fine. The anesthesiologist said, well, I'm going to give her a little extra to a, a little extra morphine to last her. And this was after they had extubated her and repaired her palate. And the anesthesiologist did push in um, more morphine and um, my daughter at that point stopped breathing and we did pull the hospital records because we, you know, wanted to know what had happened. It's almost impossible to sue for this kind of thing because um, it's not below the standard of care if they're genuinely trying their best to serve the patient. But just for myself, we, you know, we wanted to know what happened and for a, an hour in the operating room, there's no notation of her oxygen stats. And typically they would notate every you know, few minutes in that kind of situation. Um, when I was in the waiting room, the surgeon actually called, uh, came up and, and I was on the phone with a friend and he told me what had happened and that they were trying to reposition her to get her to breathe, but she was unconscious and not breathing. They had tried a, an anti-narcotic to reverse the effects of the morphine and that wasn't working. And um, the friend I happened to be on the phone with, with at that moment um, uh, knew, I don't know if you've heard of Rupert Murdoch, who sure. is a, she, so she was friends with his wife at the time. And yeah. so the next thing I knew, Rupert Murdoch was calling the hospital. Think, wow. what's going on with this infant um and um unfortunately at that point the the damage was was done and um when i received her in the recovery room you know it's it's real madness in hospitals sometimes and they they actually had a an older gentleman come down into the recovery room which at the time was this big area in the basement and which hospital was this this was ucla this was before yeah. they updated it and um they didn't have any files for him they had no idea who he was they had no idea what this what the surgery was it was just such a surreal experience to go through that and when i held her in my arms she was just very very um she was really comatose and at the time I thought, oh, it's just the, the medicine and it's just, you know, she's not come back yet. But in fact, um, she remained that way for a very long time, not able to move. And we later learned that she was blind as well. And um, uh, eventually um, we got a diagnosis 
uh, that of cerebral palsy when she was three, but it took us a long time to understand, you know, what what it means to be deprived of oxygen for such a period of time and how it can affect an infant. And I was actually working with a young man who has cerebral palsy with meditation and, and energy work with him. And I was reading about his condition. And as I was reading about it, I was realizing this is describing my daughter. And that is what helped me to, to get a correct diagnosis for her. But upon her diagnosis, uh, we were unable to get insurance for her. And I was unaware of this crisis in the United States until it happened to me that once you have that kind of a diagnosis, it is not profitable right. for insurance companies to cover you. And they, they just said no. They would say, oh, that's, that's a decline. That's, uh, we just can't. So we paid for everything uh, in cash, everything that she needed. Um, because if you have to choose between your money and your child's health, obviously, of course. Of course. you choose your health. So. How old is she now? Um, now she's 12. There's actually a lot of um, progress being made. You know, the, the brain has a lot of ability to recover from these yeah. kinds of injuries. And we went to Duke University in North Carolina sure. where they're doing stem cell infusions. And we wow. had banked her umbilical cord just not realizing that we would <laughs> ever need it. And after she had um, these stem cell infusions, she was able to, she has perfect vision oh now. That's yeah. a blessing. She wow. went from not being able to push an, uh, an elevator button with her finger because it was too, her finger was too weak to being able to do a handstand with support. Yeah. Yeah. I love so, that. That's great. I know. So we found incredible solutions and, um, and help for her. I also have another daughter. Yeah. Um, and she's, you know, um, incredibly brilliant. She's, nice. How old yeah, is she? She's 15 oh. and she's, you know, reading Dostoevsky and <laughs> she's, she's so much smarter than I am. She's a really, really brilliant girl. Yeah. I think she's as smart as her mom <laughs> say that. Um, uh, that's so crazy. Like, yeah, our kids are about the same age. My daughter's 14. Aww. We have to fill this gap between George Harrison and, and of course, you've met your husband. <laughs> you also spent time in Ahmedabad, India. You appeared in a number of movies, almost famous, uh, Marlowe's, I think, in, in Orange County. It's funny, like, we're talking at, in depth about the, um, as, as you called it, like the troughs and the, the highlights. Of the <laughs> just, oh, yeah, there was that. There was that. There was that. <laughs> well, the highlights are numerous. And so I'm used to glossing. I'm used to the the uh, the airplane view of yeah. the peaks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, but you're right, like the, the hiking and, and going through the valleys, it's, it's much deeper. Yes. But it is, a, it is a long story. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm in it. So. <laughs> um, and then, you know, we got into this tangent about um, family life with the revelation around relationships that you experienced with, with George and, and his Olivia, mm -hmm. uh, which is really beautiful. Um, how long did you end up staying in Fiji? 
you know, I would go there pretty often. So for several years, I spent about three months out of every year there. Wow, that's brilliant. Um, I love it. Yeah, it was wonderful and um, a really special place. Uh, and I was there. It's so interesting. It makes me feel really super old to consider how it's changed now because of the internet. But when I was there, they still didn't have television, really. They had a movie house that only played Indian, uh, right. old Indian Bollywood movies. Right, right. They actually have a significant Indian population Oh, I know. There. They had a president who was Indian at one point. And, uh, yeah. Singh, the golfer. There's a little bit of conflict about it because um, the, the Indian people who were brought there were promised... Uh, to then be brought to England right. and England just abandoned them there. Yep. And so there's a little bit of tension, but also this beautiful um, mix of culture. Yeah. And uh, so when I was there, you know, it was still considered very beautiful to be a little bit round and not be super skinny. Whereas in the United States, it was still the, you know, there was anorexia and all that. None of that had reached Fiji. It was still very protected from the outside world. Very special place. Nice. At that time. Yeah, at that time, it's changed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you go back regularly. So while you were acting in LA, you would go back and forth to, to Fiji. Yeah, so let's see. Um, I had, I think I had already uh, worked on the film Titanic. And so to my friends in LA, I was kind of successful as an actress, but then to the people that I was meeting in Fiji, I was an absolute nobody. <laughs> but you didn't need to be because they didn't judge you that way. Um, well, it kind of depends. I mean, you get, uh, uh, yeah, some people were, were definitely, you will meet celebrities who are, who are incredible, like George Harrison and very down to earth, but then a lot of people who who enter into that realm of, of being a celebrity do so because they've worked very hard to to get there, and it's who's who is really meaningful to them, and they they will walk into a room and assess you matter, you matter, you yeah. don't matter, you don't matter, and that, and that was something that was special about George and Olivia. They didn't have that. And he, there was even one dinner that we had in Fiji where he would kind of look at me and smile because there would be attorneys who would come through and people in, in show business who, who would actually say, get out of my way, you don't matter. Yeah, like that's actually a thing. And they, and they really meant it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So um, definitely there's that element. And it just is what it is. It exists. I think the important thing that George helped me to see is that just because they have that perspective doesn't mean it's true. No, in fact, it's yeah. false. And uh, it says more about how depraved their soul is than it does mm. anything about where you are in life. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that there's still room for them to grow right. and we can still hope for them. Right. that they'll, they'll grow out of that superficiality. Right. So when I did Orange County, I got to meet some of my heroes who I'd seen mm. uh, in Saturday Night Live growing up. Chevy Chase. Um, 
Lily Tomlin, Chevy Chase. I shared a trailer with Chevy Chase. Wow. And he, you know, when we were um, waiting for them to set up the scenes, he would tell us these stories about his childhood, which were absolutely horrible um, about the abuse that he endured as a child and um, all that he went through. And, and um, show business was never easy him either even though he was very he's perceived as being very successful when I met Lily Tomlin I had an aha moment because she she was actually asking me who I knew and I was writing scripts at that time I had some ideas that I I was writing and and she saw me as an up-and-coming writer or talent and I be, I became aware that she was working me for contacts, the way that I had worked other people trying to, you know, and I, and I, it dawned on me that it never ends. Never ends. And that was the beginning of the end of my uh, life as an actress in, in Hollywood because it's so stressful and there's happiness and it's always around the corner. It's always, well, if I can gain a little more status, a little more notoriety, um, a higher pay rate, uh, there's always something that you need to attain to, to, to be happy. And then when I met um, some of these giants, uh, to me, they were giants, and saw that that, that striving and that constant hunger, um, it's never satisfied. And, and it's never, you never would reach a plateau where you're just okay and you can just be you know, in my imagination, you reach Olympus and you just hang out and you're, you know, you're one of the gods and you can there, just, I can have the others, right? <laughs> now you're there and, and everything is okay, but that's a total, that was a total illusion. Wow. It's, it's a constant hustle and um, everyone has to decide for themselves when enough is enough. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You would have been like, who's this Asim guy? I'm never talking to him. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, if you really go into Hollywood stories, you can see that statistically it's it's kind of a crapshoot yeah. for who, um, who survives yeah. that endless stress and yeah. who doesn't. Yeah. And then, you know, tack on wanting to thrive or be stable, have a, have a family, have happiness. Um, it's a tall order. Yeah, it's a very, very rare individual that can balance all that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, can we even think of any examples where that's really happened? Um, Tom Hanks, maybe one, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I it's hard to know because you really have to. Yeah, I think that it's there. What's presented is often yeah what Club, what they choose uh, yeah. to share. <laughs> Exactly. And what's really happening is it's really a mystery. Right. But there are a lot of tragic stories as well that are, are well known, you know. So, yeah, I'm yeah. grateful. And often it's substance abuse, as you alluded to earlier, or worse. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or both. Alexander Gudnov, for example, is a, was a wonderful ballet dancer from Russia who came here. He had a career, so gifted. He was an actor, um, but he was unable to um, 
navigate a stable relationship and, and had addictions. And um, most people are surprised to know that his life ended pretty early. Yeah. You know, and. Well, I mean, the list goes on like Heath Ledger, Philip oh, yeah. Hoffman, just yeah. actors that, you know, left. Like when you hear Owen Wilson uh, grappled with mental health issues. Yeah. You're like Lightning McQueen, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's also a lot of pressure. I, I can't imagine sustaining a life under that much pressure and scrutiny for so long. Yeah. It's a lot. I mean, when you come to a sense of being um, really sensitive to stress um, or kind of sensitive to your emotions, and most people who are artists, who are actors, who are able to access their emotions in a way that, that's communicable are uh, intensely sensitive. Okay. So you put this intensely sensitive person under the most pressure and scrutiny um, imaginable, and it's a very delicate situation. Yeah, volatile. <laughs> yeah, can yeah. be. Yeah, can yeah. be. Volatile, volatile. So, um, when I first, when when Max first mentioned you, and and I did the Google thing, and I saw your photo, I'm like, wow, she's so familiar. Where is she from? <laughs> And then, of course, it was the uh, your aura is purple scene. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which I'm sure you've been told that a gazillion times. So it's pretty banal. Yeah, um, people used to shout out at me when I was walking down the street when that film first came out. Beth, your aura is purple. What color's my aura? Are you really from Denver? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Very unoriginal, but funny. At <laughs> least like the first few times, but after that, it must have gotten really old. Um, well, what's really interesting about that movie is that it was before Almost Famous, in my experience, and I don't even know if you can remember this time, when I talked to my kids about it, I'd say, you know, in the olden days, when mommy was young, <laughs> movies would come and you would see them on the big screen yeah and if you wanted to see them again you would have to go to the video store with your card and check it out but if someone else had already checked out your copy you would have to go into a waiting list and they would call you when and if that vhs tape was returned or you'd have to wait for it to air on television, but you couldn't rewind television in the olden days. You just had to be ready for what you were going to watch. And it's hard for them to even imagine. But well, Almost Famous, it was one of the first movies that kind of hit the, the internet. You know, it's oh, still alive true. and... And kind of lasted a really had a slow, long tail, like yeah, a long that's burn. True. That's true. It was popular for some time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. My son asked me the other day what uh, what I would watch on Netflix when I was his age. <laughs> what did you say? Well, I tried to explain it in VHS, and he goes, "Daddy, that just sounds crazy." <laughs> he, they at least know about DVDs. And I'm like, it was before a DVD. 
Mm -hmm. You had to do this annoying rewind thing. You couldn't choose a chapter, son. It was really crazy. <laughs> crazy times. I don't know how we survived the olden days. God, you know, it just seemed easier then uh, in, some, in some ways. And um, yet we, we dreamed of a time when we could have a conversation like this. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. my da my daughter said, "What are those little holes in the wall? They're not squares, they're not rectangles. They're like a weird, it's like two squares, one bigger square and then one littler square. What is that? That's a telephone line. What for ch for charging? You can charge? <laughs> no, no, that's to wow. plug in. <laughs> wow." <laughs> When I when I had my first job on Titanic was my first acting job ever, wow. and I um, was having some difficulty in my romantic relationship at the time. So, um, the boy I was dating, uh, he was also an actor and was a little bit jealous, or I don't know, it was oh, it was a difficult time. So we had a long conversation from the hotel in Rosarito um, to Los Angeles. Like the whole night we were on the phone, just hash, you know, those yeah. early relationship yeah. discussions. And I got the bill and it was more than my, my paycheck. It was like $1,200 for that conversation. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you end up paying it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I had to pay it. <laughs> they wouldn't let me use the phone if I didn't pay it. They were going to well, cut yeah, my line. You had to call him back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Oh, okay. So um, your choice to become a sannyasi, a yogic nun. Share with me about that. So by the time I went to, my first trip to India was with Eckhart Tolle. And um, that was touring with him uh, when he was giving his book tour. What and year it was, was actually, that, mm, I don't remember. Uh, like mid 2000s or so, right? Yeah, it must have been. Okay. Um, I could look it up somehow, but yeah, early, early 2000s. And um, that was really amazing because he wasn't famous yet. He had just published The Power of Now. and. Um, and in India, some of the street side um, meditators would see him and respond to his energy and wow. acknowledge and kind of bow, um, not to us, not to the group that was with him or the people working with him, but specifically to him. And wow. it was really amazing to see that and to see that there is such still a, for many people in India, such a priority on spirituality yeah. um, to the point of even giving it more focus than the practical. So you'd see people who, you know, their car had broken down and so they were doing the puja on the side of the road to, <laughs> to get the divine intervention. And sometimes it works. Um, even driving with Eckhart and we had a taxi driver, we were driving um, along the Ganges River and, um, and the area that we were driving through, they were dumping a lot into the Ganges and I asked the driver, 
you know, do you worry about the Ganges River? Do you worry that it's too much to handle all of this pollution? There's not, or at least at that time, there wasn't a lot of regulation. And um, it, the emphasis was more on profit. And the taxi driver said, um, worry about the Ganges. No, I don't worry about the Ganges. Mother Ganda, she can handle anything. She is a goddess. You put anything in her, she can take it and make it divine. She's with Ganges. And he, he was really, I thought, wow, I can't even, I mean, I don't know if that I can go with that because, you know, there are these special dolphins who, who are endangered because of all the pollution that, that swim in that river. But in fact, there is some truth to that, that the Ganges water, they studied it, and it, it does have this amazing regenerative ability. Um, so that was my first trip to India, and then when I, um, I met a guru and I went to Amnamad with this guru, and, uh, and at that point, I had become quite disenchanted with show business, and um, I was really burned out on the superficiality of it, and I was also really tired of surviving. I was really tired of trying to fight for my survival and trying to just earn enough to to live um, well in in the American culture. And my heart and my focus was really in spirituality. And it was all I wanted. And, and I was very clear about that, that I really wanted to disown superficiality. I wanted to disown this striving for fame or status I wanted to, um, I didn't even want to try to, to be in show business anymore. I really just wanted to devote my life to spiritual cultivation and to being of service to others. And so it was really timely that I would meet this guru who invited me to go to India with my boyfriend at the time. And then um, the guru invited me to become part of their order and to become a nun. And um I thought that sounded like a great idea, so I accepted. Wow. And the, the other nuns took me out and got me in my orange robes, <laughs> and they had to buy me gold because I didn't really wear much jewelry. And um, I guess if you're seen without any gold, they think you're a beggar. Someone had come to the ashram and asked where they found this beggar, me, because <laughs> I didn't have yeah. any gold on. Yeah. So they, they had me properly outfitted, and I, for a, a long time, I was just meditating and teaching. They had a little school for the local children, and it was very nice, and, um, and I did feel peaceful, and I enjoyed it very much, um, but it came to a head when somehow the guru had found out that I, I had been an actress, and that I had been in Titanic, and the reality about Titanic, the truth is that I was basically cut out. I, you know, you can barely see me in the background. It was my first job. I was just happy to be there, but, you know, I was barely in it. And this guru called the press in India and told them that I was a celebrity. So one morning I came out of meditation and there were all these cameras there taking my picture and, inter and, and, and video cameras interviewing me and, Oh, we are so happy to have you here. You're such a big star and, and you're here and you're embracing meditation. And I mean, it's just wonderful. And, and, uh, and you're the star of Titanic. 
And I said, wait a minute, no, I'm not a star. And they said, um, oh, you're so modest. Stop being so modest. And I, I, was, I, I kept trying to clear it up and say, no, no, there's been a mistake. But they kept calling me Kate. I'm like, no, it's Olivia. <laughs> <laughs> no, they they knew my name, but they um I don't I don't so they have their own CNN in India. Yeah. And so for tw a twenty four hour news cycle, every five minutes they had this little piece with my my interview, my little in my robes intercut with um with Kate Winslet and Leo on the front of the ship, right. you know, and the music, Celine Dion. Our, heart, our hearts will go on and and kind of indicating that that was me Wow! without you know and so I sat in the the ashram kind of um sitting area and there's this really old tv that where we were watching and the guru was so happy to <laughs> yeah. damn he had pulled off <laughs> well and the reality of having an ashram I learned is that um, it's difficult. And so he was, he and the other nuns were constantly having to bribe the power company to keep the lights on, city officials to keep their zoning. Like the, it wasn't without cost what they were doing. And so this was a way for them to um, kind of be seen and be on the map and, and get some attention. And it did get a lot of attention. Um, and so for me, walking down the street, there used to be all these beggar children who would run after me asking for, for money. And instead, they wanted, after this, they wanted my autograph. <laughs> and I had to keep telling them, there's been a misunderstanding. I'm not who you think I am. And I guess that this is often the case with fame, that that, that feeling of, I'm not who you think I am. It's all projection. Wow, and what cool. I realized at that point was that everything I had been trying to escape had followed me. Yeah. So this false, this falseness and the superficiality and the struggle for survival was still there. And for me, I realized that maybe being on this planet, that's just inherent. And maybe what I'm trying to escape is inescapable. But what I, I realized I could do is I could still devote my life to spirituality and to being of service no matter where I go. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and um, uh, your first step after that was uh, in writing children's books. Yes. Yeah. Well, I didn't start writing children's books until after I got married and had children. So. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So I really wrote them with my children in mind. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. Nice. And so um, um, did you stop touring with uh, Tola at that point? Um, I had already stopped touring with him, but I still uh, helped with events and retreats and they began doing more. He became very famous quite quickly. Yeah. So I would do, um, I would help with, it was then called ETTV, was a little like website project. So I helped with some of the filming and I'd go back and forth between um, LA and Vancouver. So I never really lost um, touch with Eckhart and Eckhart's teachings helped me a lot to navigate that whole situation in Ahmedabad and 
-hmm. instead of being angry or or feeling betrayed by this guru, I instead looked at that moment and what it was teaching me. What, What was it showing me? How was that moment guiding me? So I was still uh, involved with Eckhart and continued to be in touch and involved with him. Nice. Oh, that's great. Um, You've talked so much about um, meditation and, uh, you know, I I love, uh, I think it's on your website, you have a a why I practice meditation uh, and it's really moving and, I'm just going to read it because that was my initial inclination. Although I think we've touched on this in more profound ways. This feels a bit superficial after our discussion, but not having that, (laughs) knowing that we would get to this. Um, You're right. Thanks to meditation, I am a portable sanctuary, which we talked about. Uh, Within myself, I am safe, at ease, and in peace, no matter my location. The energy I bring to my life and every encounter, every creation is enhanced, brightened, and more positive because of meditation. Still feel that? Yes, absolutely. Maybe even amplified. Yes. Yeah. That's so great. Um, You have this great advice for people, meditate before you eat. And I thought (laughs) that that was genius because... um, a lot of mental health issues around that, the, you know, the indulgence side of it, the addiction side of it, the trying to solve what's happening inside us through eating or not eating. And um, that practice, I feel like, just forces you to be present and remind yourself what the purpose of consumption is and its nourishment, as you talked about. Yes, so nourishment and also pleasure. Yeah, but I don't know. Absolutely. I, it's important I, in my experience to not numb yourself. Right, right. In, ge- in general. <laughs> or, or deny. Yeah. 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 And so often we swallow our emotions instead of expressing or processing them. Um, and I think that's something that we all, it's such a privilege to to have so much food in our country, but it's also something to keep in balance. Oh, 100%, yeah. yeah. There was a statistic that we reached this maybe a decade or two ago where there were an equal number of overnourished as undernourished people on the planet. Wow, isn't that interesting? Yeah. So the concept of balance is more emphasized in my experience in the Taoist tradition. And that's where we, we get traditional Chinese medicine and Tai Chi and Qigong. And, and the concept of balance is really beautiful and very appropriate, I feel, for Americans because so much of our conditioning has to do with get as much as you can. Yeah. And I don't know where that comes from, but definitely the the concept of balance applies universally. So for example, with water, too much water, and you have a very destructive flood or um, other other disaster, too little water and you have a drought. So balance when it comes to nature is really obvious. Too little fire and you have a very cold winter, maybe you don't have enough warmth to cook your food or to be warm in winter, but 
too much fire and it's incredibly destructive, not only to the land, but also to people. And the same is true with food and even with, with stuff. So something about Uncle Peter that I didn't share, Peter was absolutely a hoarder and <laughs> he was, <laughs> and his wife, my Aunt Martha, um, and I wrote a book for Martha uh, called At My Father's Knee. She was uh, oh. Japanese-American. Okay. And um, Martha had to deal with Peter's stuff. So he just loved so much. He loved um, art. He loved newspapers. He loved collaging. But he loved it so much that you could barely get through <laughs> their their little house on Mead Street <laughs> in Denver. And, and Martha helped him a lot with that but the idea of loving something so much that you can't get enough of it and and then you can't even find it you can't even see it because you you know so the idea of balance when it comes to everything is really pertinent yeah i completely agree with that yeah um when did you start practicing tai chi um, I started um, I started quite early at the same time that I was really exploring yoga. Um, tai Chi is actually something that's a big part of a classical actor's training. Hmm. So um, at Interlochen, we practiced and learned Tai Chi as a way of um, bringing energy to the stage. So when you watch a, a really trained Shakespearean actor, you'll notice that a lot of the time their knees are bent. And that's because they're allowing the energy to flow through them. Um, if you ever go see Shakespeare in the Park in New York City, or, or if you go to a really big forum for a Shakespeare performance, you'll see that some Shakespearean actors are able to um, turn on their energy or their chi, or in, um, in India you would say prana, yeah. And before they even go on stage, before anyone makes an announcement that the show is beginning, you'll just feel the entire audience, which will be roaring in conversation, you'll see them just get totally quiet wow. because that energy is so pervasive and so palpable. So I first encountered Tai Chi and Qigong and energy work when I received my classical training at Interlochen in Shakespeare. They also teach you how to transform your energy. So you practice being invisible. Mm. So you practice going to a shop, <laughs> which I'm really good at. You practice going into a shopping mall and kind of blending in with the shrubbery or just how to turn the volume down on your energy mm. right. and then how to turn the volume up on your energy so that you have it when you need it but also how to cultivate energy for stage presence and then how to transform it, which is very similar to shape-shifting. So yeah. I love personality actors who yeah. just go on and they're themselves and they're, you know, it's always kind of the same person. Right. But right. I, I really, really love like the Meryl Streep actors who can really transform themselves um, and become someone else and it really starts with with energy hmm. so it's a part of classical acting training 
to learn how to access and use energy. Um, but then I encountered um, a deeper training in Tai Chi and Qigong at Yosan University where I studied traditional Chinese medicine. And um, my first Tai Chi teacher there was Dr. Ming Dong Li. And he uh, is a, you know, many times over uh, Tai Chi um, world champion, mm. just amazing. And also a doctor, he's retired now, but a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine. Mm. And, and um, he's remark a remarkable person, but he um, trained me for my first competitions and really encouraged me to compete in general. Now, what is a competition like? What are you being judged on? Well, have you, see, have you seen the Karate Kid? Yeah, my son's really obsessed with the latest one <laughs> with uh, Will Smith's kid. I haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's an interesting movie. Um, but it's nothing like that. <laughs> ah, this is a point-counterpoint. Okay, I got it. Nothing like Karate Kid. <laughs> it's actually, um, they, they put you in a small square and you have um, at least eight judges. So you have a judge in every corner of the square and at every kind of long point of the square. Mm -hmm. And while you're um, practicing your Tai Chi, and most, I would say all of them, but I mean, maybe there are some exceptions. They're all doctors of traditional Chinese medicine or acupuncturists. Mm -hmm. And so because Tai Chi is an internal form, they're looking at your energy. So they're watching your physical performance, but they're also watching to see how you maneuver energy. And they're, they're writing down the whole time, you know, marks against you, marks for you, and very, very serious. Wow. Yeah, how I big love is it. This, how big is this square that you're in? Uh, I don't know exactly the, the square footage, but it's just big enough. So to you, do you can extend your, your arms, arms around? Oh, yeah. 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 Oh. Okay. oh, yeah. 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 Um, I mean, it's, yeah, it's big enough. Okay. But it's not huge. It's just big enough to do, you know, I would say maybe, maybe 10 feet by 10 feet. Okay. All right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, EZR World is a nonprofit that you're involved with. Yeah. Here. Well, because of grace, but also inspired by a young man who I work with, who's now in his 20s, and he has cerebral palsy, um, but is really impacted. So he's in a wheelchair from the neck uh, down. He doesn't have a lot of, of movement, but he loves to travel. And he remembers every name of every person he's met on his travels. Um, wow. He's been to many different uh, countries and um, he, you can ask him when the next flight to Paris will be and, and he can tell you. <laughs> uh -huh. And I was really inspired by him because when I went to uh, teach meditation for uh, the corporation Louis Vuitton in Paris, mm -hmm. um, I brought my family with me. Nice. And um, so my young friend really gave me a lot of advice on which airline to take, which airline not to take. Um, you know, something you don't, 
it's something that's hard to find otherwise is, you know, where do they have good pushers? So a pusher is the person who pushes your wheelchair from the, uh, and different airports have different kind of sub companies that they contract. And so my young friend has all of this information. And I thought, I, I really thanked him heartily for his advice, for his guidance, because it made the trip possible. Yeah. Um, and I thought, you know, I, I want this for everyone to be able to travel, to be able to navigate, to know which cities are wheelchair friendly, which ones are not. And, you know, for example, when it comes to visiting Venice, most of those bridges oh, that you would cross yeah, right. are not wheelchair accessible, but there are a few. So Easier World um, is beautifully put together by our friend Max Josephson. Mm. And it's a way for people to, yeah. Did you know he built it? No. (laughs) So I came to him with the idea and he said, yes, we have to do this. And he built it. I love that about Max. Me too. Oh, he is. And he made it really amazing. We'll continue to make it better and better. But it's going to be like Yelp, but for special needs, um, or depending on how folks identify um, the disabled, or in the case of my young friend who was born with cerebral palsy, he self-identifies as abled. I love that. Yeah. So um, it's something very beautiful that will continue to nourish and Hopefully it will be able to nourish our community and probably once we're out of the, um, the stillness of the the COVID pandemic, it'll become more helpful than ever. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Olivia, we managed to cover all the topics I was hoping to. Thank you for, um, for bravely navigating the valleys and the peaks. Oh, of these experiences. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.